Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitlow. And this is episode 43 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 27th of November. And Leon, what have we got on the menu for today? Well, we've got a great interview with Warren Davies. He runs a farm management solutions company and he's going to be talking to us all about farm management solutions. Yep, a lot of common sense from the uh, farm. That's right, that's right. So it's worth listening to him. And then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. And we're going to talk about whether the government's going to actually do any GST reform and Sinclair doesn't think so. No, he thinks uh, GST will stay right where it is. But uh, there'll be a lot of other tax changes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's, first of all, have a chat with Warren Davies. Warren, tell us about Farm Management Solutions. Uh, Farm Management Solutions is uh, a system, I suppose. Uh, uh, Over years of um, experience in the dairy industry, I noticed that the the challenge was um, employing staff and having your systems in place. Um, So basically the job got done. So I developed um, systems just through experience, the, the, the procedures that I followed basically on a day-to-day basis and, um, and I implement them on other people's farms now. So are you saying a lot of the farms don't have systems in place? Uh, it's probably uh, the farming business has evolved from a family business and um, I suppose it's a, it's a skill. Um, managing labour is a skill uh, like farmers are really good at managing themselves and 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 managing their farms. I'm not denying that it's um, it's probably as they develop and evolve from a family business where you're managing yourself, uh, then you start employing people. Uh, it, it's a different skill set altogether. It was probably brought to my attention when I left my farm in the middle of the drought and went and managed farms. Uh, it was um, brought to my attention fairly quickly that I was good at managing myself but not as good at managing other people. So I needed to put systems in place to make sure what I needed to get done got done. So what kind of systems do you need? Basically, like from, you know, from the basic startup procedures uh, of like even starting up the dairy. So uh, like I'll, I'll use an example. When we, when we went and managed our first farm, once we left our farm, uh, we were, uh, I was away um, dealing with some heifers uh, off the farm and um, we got caught up. They they broke fences and got out on a main road and all that. I rang my wife who'd never even milked in the dairy where we were and had never milked in a rotary dairy and I had procedures on the wall. There was a 20-step startup procedure. I asked her to go and get the cows and then when, when she got the cows in, give us a ring and, and we'll let you know where we are. Well, we were still tied up. So I said, would you be able to start milking? And she goes, well, I've never milked in here. To so go to the wall, grab the sheet off the wall, which was Velcroed on the wall, walk around, tick off your 20 steps and away you go. Cupping up cows, obviously she'd done that before. So once she was going, everything was right. Moral to the story was when we got back from the from doing the heifers, she had 600 cows milked and she'd never milked in that dairy before. So that really highlighted the need to even basic procedures like startup procedures and, and, and the like are really important, especially when you're employing staff. So, Warren, it also shows that modern equipment's essential to produce uh, better efficiency. Yes, it does. Yeah, like there's efficiencies. There's a lot of efficiencies in the technology that you can use in the dairy industry uh, now. 
But if it's not used or it's even just even manual stuff, like manual tasks, if they're not done in an efficient way, uh, you can waste a lot of time and, and then they just become inefficient and, and not worth the, the investment of having them on the farm. So tell me, Warren, how much has farming changed? You said before that a lot of families have moved away from farms and corporations are now running them. Yeah, it's probably not as much as um, well, there is obviously the corporations and, and, and that, that corporate style farm, but family farms have evolved from just the mum and dad and a couple of kids. Like now more than, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, kids now go to university and, and sometimes and a lot of the times don't come back to the farm. Like they make their own life, whether it's in Melbourne or wherever it is. Uh, so then that you need to then employ staff to be up as your as your enterprise gets bigger, and just the um, over the the you know the last twenty years, farming enterprises have got bigger. Uh, they've you know they've had to scale up just to keep. I suppose there's a there's a conflicting argument. Like to keep a, ahead of the game, they needed to get bigger, but at the same time, it it impacts on other other ways as well. But generally, farms have, well, especially dairy farms, have got bigger. So farming is not a, an eight-hour day job. It's uh, 24-7 in a way. So how do you handle that? It d- just depends. Like on farms that I've, I've managed is like I like to – you run kind of two shifts, if you like, or um, a staggered start just because, yeah, the days are long. Uh, there's no denying that. And, and you've got to look after staff. And that's probably one of the things when you get back to that family farm – Farm owners or, you know, farms that have ran by families, you know, they just work until the jobs gets done. But when you're employing labour, you know, you've got to take that into consideration and, um, you know, you've got to follow the, the regulations and you can't have people working 16 and 17-hour days. Um, you know, obviously there is times when that's needed to be done, but uh, uh, general, um, generally you've got to look after your staff. So I used to stagger the starts to, to the day, like so people that would start early in the morning, you know, would knock off, you know, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. So they'd done their eight or ten hours for the day. So how easy is it for farmers to adjust to these new conditions? Oh, well, like it's just been, like the conditions as in farmers, farms getting bigger has just been a, an ever-evolving thing over the last 20 or 30 years farms have just slowly got bigger and bigger when i was born and bred in melbourne and when we moved up here when i was 15 that was in 1982 and there was a drought on basically there wasn't a silo on a farm uh like around here so no supplementary feeding was was taken place they just fed grass so the herds were reasonably small on um, bigger acres but like those farms now that you know might have been four or five hundred acres and milking 200 cows those farms now milk six or six hundred or a thousand cows so they've just um, had to big bigger dairies and and then obviously supplementary feeding then's come into the into their system um, and some of those can be fairly intensive like with tmr systems and um, feed pads and all that sort of um, infrastructure so management skills, managing the books becomes much more important, doesn't it? That's right. The, the whole management of the farm, from your financial management to your resource management to your human resource management, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a 
a highly skilled um, occupation, I suppose, that, you know, you just can't have anyone just come off the street that can do it. So my system that I, with my farm management solutions, that puts the systems in place to uh, alleviate the day-to-day stuff. Um, So if someone comes off the street, if you employ someone that's, New to the dairy industry, you can, there's a that you can train them, train them into your system, train them into a role that you want them to perform, and then they've got the procedures and um and the the system in in front of them that they can just follow. So basically, the way I look at it is if it's like if you were a hamburger flipper in McDonald's, you could be working in Shepparton here, close by in McDonald's here, or you could travel to Los Angeles in America and do the same job because the systems through the McDonald's franchise are pretty much the same. That's what I envisage for the the dairy industry as well. There are a lot of challenges at the moment. For example, the price of milk has dropped quite dramatically. How should farmers handle that? Uh, it's It's about probably assessing where you're at now and that's what we do with our clients i work in conjunction with a nutritionist and and an accountant like through my business so we're all separate entities but we work together to help people find the solutions but yeah you've got to assess where you're at and what your goals are moving forward and how the best um i suppose the best way to achieve those goals at the least cost because yep you're right milk prices dropped we've had a reasonably dry winter so water prices are high it's about making the right decisions on if you're going to grow summer crops or continue growing summer pasture and what's the right mix and and what's the right stocking rate etc etc that would be quite a challenge in these market conditions wouldn't it it, it is a challenge um to be able to get it right because at the moment milk price is is low it could rise again um, and that's the, one of the the biggest things with the dairy industry or basically any really livestock or cropping kind of farming is it's not something that you make a decision today and it's just done a lot of this is planned 12 months in advance like with with calving patterns and that on a dairy farm you know you're nine months or 10 months or 11 months in the planning like, and those cows are joined so they're going to calve because that was done nine months ago. You couldn't foresee that milk price was going to drop or or that the, it was going to be a dry winter and so you've just got to you have strategies in place on how you handle that and how the best way to re, um, to achieve the, the result that you were looking for that year. Warren Davies, thank you very much for your time. Uh, pleasure. Yeah, so what do you think, Leon? I mean, as I said, a lot of common sense, a lot of experience and uh, how to make a buck on the farm. Yeah, well, I thought it was a fascinating interview and it was fascinating his perspective on uh, how to do it, yeah. Yeah, very much so. So uh, now, Sinclair, the wisdom of Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, there's a lot of talk about GST reform and uh, the there's talk about it going up to 15% broadening the tax base. What's your view about it? I think I'm I'm very happy that we're actually having this discussion. I, I think it's an important discussion to have because in the past, the um, former Labor government and then the former Abbott government always said, we want to have tax reform, but we don't want to talk about the GST at all. I think that was a mistake. So I'm, I'm glad we're having the debate. But having said that, I still think I would leave it unchanged. But I think having had the debate, people have come to a greater understanding why the tax should be unchanged and why I think it'll end up being unchanged. Why do you think it should be unchanged? 
I think the, the, the GST as it was introduced in Australia in, in 2000 was a, a very good tax reform. It's worked well. The design features of the GST have meant that we've had a consumption tax in Australia that hasn't suffered from the problems which consumption taxes in a whole host of other countries have suffered from. When they've been introduced, they've tended to be introduced at low rates and they've very quickly ramped up to very high rates of taxation. So uh, the Europeans, for example, in, in, in some places it's as high as 21% and they were introduced at much lower levels. So in Australia, John Howard introduced a GST in, well, it came in at 2000, he announced in, in 1998, it came in at 10%. And what's it, 15 years later, it is still at 10%. So I think it's been remarkably stable. 10% is an easy number to understand. It's an easy number to, to work out. It's, it's very transparent. Whereas most other numbers that people talk about, um, well, there's been some talk of 12.5%, which people don't really know how to work out 12.5% or even 15%, which is a bit easier than 12.5%. But it's, it's the, the, the rate has been remarkably stable. It's remarkably tra- transparent. People know what it is. And, um, so that's a good feature. The other features of the, of the GST, it's, it taxes most things. And what it doesn't tax, we can, make reasonable arguments why it shouldn't tax those things. And so it's well known, well understood, well accepted in the community and well designed and I would leave well enough alone. One can understand why health and education would stay there because the government spends a lot of money on health and education, but why should food be exempt? Well, it's only fresh food that's that's exempted from the GST and the argument there would be that the government has a social objective of encouraging people to consume more fresh food than it does uh, processed foods or canned foods. So we have almost de facto a fat tax in Australia where uh, um, not fresh food is taxed at 10% higher than it otherwise would have been. So um, you can... You can think of that as a health measure. You can think of that as a um, an incentive measure. You can think of it as a uh, a subsidy to to fresh foods of some sort. At a personal level, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too hung up about the fresh food exemption. But I I think um, a lot of people find the argument quite plausible that we don't tax it. It it does add business complexity, of course. Uh, what about financial services? I mean, uh, originally it was just too hard to uh, put into the GST, but uh, surely now, I mean, 15 years later, there's, there's technology attached to financial services and it's just so much easier. Everyone uses technology yes. with financial services. The argument with some financial services is that they are input tax, so they're, they're, they're taxed already in other ways. So the GST would constitute double taxation. For buying and selling shares, for example, they are actually second-hand products, um, so Second-hand products, generally speaking, are not taxed on the GST, so uh, um, they, so they wouldn't be uh, uh, taxed anyway. Again, it, it, it's a case of just trying to avoid double taxation and keeping the system as simple as, as as possible. Of course, to the extent that the nature of these services have changed and does become possible to tax them, they should be taxed. Um, but generally speaking, uh, a lot of the things. So when you take out a loan, for example, it, it's not clear to me that that is a, a service that should be should attract the the, the GST and then. And of course, you know, we, we have stamp duties and what have you, which sort of cover that range anyway. We want to avoid double taxation. So there are good arguments for, for not taxing a lot of financial services. Those that, that can be taxed that are not double taxed should be taxed. Uh, one of one of the big issues, I think, with the GST is that if you introduce it, you're going to have to increase the compensation 
bill, which is going to be an impost on taxpayers, one would question where's the efficiency going to come from in doing that? Well, the, the, the argument for increasing the GST and, say, cutting other taxes is the deadweight losses of a GST are quite low compared to other taxes. But when you go start getting into compensation issues, that actually reduces the, the net benefit of increasing the GST. So uh, well, one of the views that I always have is, well, if, if we think that increasing the GST is going to make the economy more efficient, why are we having to expand the welfare system? It, 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 it's a nonsensical proposition. So to be quite honest, I think if we are looking at a situation where we are simply increasing the GST to pay more welfare, we should say, well, no, let's, let's not do that. A GST should be a revenue-neutral affair whereby other taxes are offset. It shouldn't be a budget-neutral affair where we simply increase spending to, to, to take up the, the, the extra tax revenue. So there actually needs to be a genuine reform that's actually articulated and explained and, and the arguments presented at the moment – we're having a very broad-based discussion around getting people used to the idea of changing the GST. There isn't as yet a specific proposal on the table, and I do think we need to look at the at the, the details very carefully. Um, but we should be looking at those details. It's, it's you know in the past just simply saying no uh, wasn't good enough. We should be looking at a detailed proposal and actually say, well, is this really a worthwhile reform? And the chances are it's not going to be. Well, the, the chances are, too, that most of the public would have put, would oppose it. I mean, there was the, um, the Financial Review yesterday had a poll showing that 52% of people supported it if there was compensation. Yes. But 52% is just over half, which means there's half still oppose it. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I, I, I think the thing is that this is going to have to be a reform where there is substantial, almost overwhelming support for it. And as yet, there isn't overwhelming. There isn't anywhere near it. And of course, this is just people... People just like the idea. They haven't seen the details yet. And, of course, a lot of people think that they are going to be beneficiaries in terms of receiving the compensation, whereas in actual fact, probably a lot of them won't be. Uh, we, we've seen that op- often enough. People actually um, consider themselves to be middle-income earners, when in actual fact, they are higher-income earners, oh. according to the definition. So they think they might be getting compensation, but in actual fact, just their cost of living is going to go up. Do, do you see um, the government actually introducing it? Given, given that it has tepid support from the public yes. and uh, it doesn't look like to be a, a vote winner. No, I, I think over the over the last couple of weeks when we've actually been having this GST debate is that a lot of uh, um, enthusiasm has sort of gone out of it. Um, we've had the discussion and people have said they've looked at it, they've heard what they say, the the population are not overwhelmingly supportive of it, and there are increasingly reports in the papers where, where people are saying, you know, the backbench and politicians don't like this idea. So I think we will have discussed it, we will have thrashed it out, and people are going to say no, and probably the government will move on to other things. Do you expect it to be in the taxation reform proposal? I'd be very surprised if uh, an increased GST comes out of all of this. Yeah, no, I, I think we're not going to be seeing an increase in the GST anytime soon. It'll be a very brave government that takes this to an election. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you reckon? you agree with Sinclair Leon? I actually think the government will put it in, in the too hard basket. I mean, I mean, so far, all they've been doing is putting things on the table, as they say. And uh, now when... Governments are in the habit of saying we're putting things on the table. What they're doing is they're just running it up the flagpole to see how the electorate will respond. Yeah, that's right. They don't want to lose too many votes. I mean, after all, why are they in Canberra? It's to stay in Canberra. That's right. That's right. So I suspect Sinclair's right. I suspect nothing will be done with it. No, and, and if there is some need for GST, 
I don't think it'll be 15%. No, I don't think so either. No. Okay, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, the Eurozone has given Greece another lifeline. Member states have agreed to disperse funds needed to recapitalise Greece's struggling banks. And uh, that came on Saturday. Uh, the Dutch Finance Minister, Jerome Dusselboom, uh, put out a statement saying EU Finance Ministry officials agreed that, in his words, the Greek authorities have now completed the first set of milestones in the financial sector measures that are essential for a successful recapitalisation process. And he said the Board of Directors of the Eurozone's crisis funds would transfer the funds needed for recapitalisation of the Greek banking sector out of €10 billion Euros earmarked for this purpose. So the Greek banks are going to get a real hit, and that's really good for them. The decision, though, comes after the Greek Parliament last Thursday night overhauled bank governance rules, they eased restrictions on foreclosures, and they introduced the wine tax. But the changes came at a price for Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. Two lawmakers refused to back the bill. They were expelled from his caucus in Parliament, thus eroding his majority to three seats. And that, of course, puts pressure on Tsipras to secure enough votes to push through additional belt-tightening measures and cost-cutting overhauls in the country's pension systems, which are the conditions for further financial assistance. Yeah, I know. And Europe keeps on giving Greece money. And I think, uh, you know, Greece expects that it'll just keep on doing that. That's right. I don't think this story is going to end. Now, uh, in the US, the economy actually expanded more than expected in the third quarter. And that only adds to the speculation that the Fed will raise interest rates next month. In the July to September quarter, gross domestic product rose at a revised annual rate of 2.1%. That's stronger than the 1.5% initially estimated. So uh, we can all expect the Fed to raise interest rates in December the 15th. Which is going to have some effect on us here, but uh, it shows that uh, the US economy coming back while China goes uh, slightly uh, downwards. That's right. Now, uh, of course, uh, oil futures uh, have jumped to a three-week high after, with the tensions between Russia and Turkey escalating after Turkey shot down a Russian jet it claimed had fall, flown into Turkish territory. And on the New York Mercantile Exchange, uh, January West Texas intermediate crude climbed to $42.87 a barrel. That's the largest, largest single session percentage in dollar gain since November the 3rd. European benchmark Brent oil for January delivery rose $1.29 or 2.9% to $46.12 a barrel in London. And the price of crude actually tends to jump whenever there's violence around oil-producing countries, particularly around the Middle East. Uh, but the, I'd say the massive stockpiles of oil so far have kept a lid on this. But analysts are now saying the market just isn't ready for a sudden supply interruption. Yeah, so we're going to see the prices at the pump rise quite clearly. Well, the issue is, too, Russia, Russia and all the OPEC countries are pumping out oil massively, and that's going to keep prices high. Well, that's right, you know, and then we're all hanging there waiting to see what uh, Putin is going to do about the insult to the Russian Empire. Indeed, we're going to wait to see what NATO does, and that's the big worry. Now, uh, consumer confidence has slipped following the terrorist attacks in Paris and Mali. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 1.2% in the week ending 22nd November, and consumers' views about future finances fell 4.7% more than offsetting increases from the previous week. And consumer confidence about the medium-term outlook uh, fell 0.2%, and that adds to the fall from the previous week. And uh, ANZ economists say a lot of that comes because of terrorist attacks. Yeah, and I think it's a fair expectation that sooner or later something large or small is going to happen here. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Now, um, some interesting figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showing that construction work done in Australia has fallen faster than expected in the September quarter, uh, with engineering work drying up amid the mining investment bust. 
and ABS data shows total construction work for the three months of September decreased 3.6% to 49.04 billion. And the result shows a faster than expected deterioration compared to the medium forecast from among economists. Uh, according to Bloomberg, they predicted a 2% drop. So that's a bit of a worry. It is indeed, yeah. Now, worrying report from uh, Moody's, uh, Gary, they said Australian housing affordability has deteriorated significantly over the last year. Sydney's the worst in 14 years. And they say the default risk on home loans in residential mortgage-backed securities has increased. And it's warned that a recent string of -of out-of-cycle interest rate hikes by the banks will put further stress on housing affordability once the jacked-up rates take effect in November. And... um, Sydney, where house prices have surged over the last year, households have spent an average of 40% on monthly mortgage repayments. That's up from 36% a year ago. And Moody's reckons a sharp rise in monthly uh, mortgage repayments is a negative for the residential mortgage-backed securities home loans market, where uh, loans are basically pulled into mortgage bonds and sold to investors. Wasn't there something uh, along those lines that caused a problem in the great financial crisis? I think there was. Well, yes, it always starts with housing, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and with uh, bankers putting uh, debt together and selling it to people. That's right. Now, Australia's Treasury has lowered its estimate of the economy's potential growth and speed limit, uh, and that reflects weaker population growth and fewer hours worked in an economy adjusting to the end of a commodity price boom. Now, in a speech on Tuesday night, Nigel Ray, who's the Deputy Secretary of Treasury, told economists that next month's budget update would assume long-term growth of just 2.75%. That's down from 3%. And a sharp slowdown in population growth since export prices peaked in 2011, he says, means the economy won't expand as fast as previously assumed. Yeah, well, these things are cyclical anyway, aren't they? That's right. Now, um, the price of iron ore has struck a 10-year low uh, after extending a six-week retreat that has seen the 25% wiped off the commodity's value. At the end of the latest session, benchmark iron ore for immediate delivery to China was trading at $43.40 a tonne. That's down from 1.8%. The current price is a record low since the steel index began releasing its data in 2008 and the weakest mark since since 2005 when miners used to send yellow benchmark contracts with Chinese steelmakers. And the latest move drags the commodity below a July the 8th nadir of 44.10 a tonne. So that's now below a 10-year low. And um, that's quite worrying. It is, and there's uh, some notes out of China in the last couple of days with their analysts uh, saying that $40 a tonne will be what it will be. Well, the, yeah, there's a guy from Morgan Stanley. He's predicting it'll be about, it'll hit 40 at the end of the year. Yeah. And, um, Andy Shee, and he's saying it'll be down in the 30s next year. Yeah. What's interesting though is a report out of Fortescue, uh, saying he's got getting his costs down. He's hoping getting his production costs down to, uh, $16 a tonne, and of course he can make money at $30. Yeah, well, that's the only way they can, uh, they can manage by getting their production costs down, but I suspect a lot of miners are going to go out of, out of business. Uh, the small ones will, and of course BHP's cost, the last I heard, was about 25 bucks. That's right, yeah. Now, uh, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has put on hold decision on anti-competition law, otherwise known as the effects test, which has caused so much consternation at the beginning of town. At the same time, however, Morrison said the government would accept whole or in part 44 of the 56 recommendations made in the Harper Review in March, and the other 12 recommendations are still on the table to be negotiated with the states. Uh, changes would include changing retail trading hours, removing restrictions on the parallel imports of books, 
And uh, Morrison said the government's going to release a discussion paper on the specific issue of misuse of market power, canvassing all the options for change beyond the Harper Plan, which actually introduce an effects test. And Cabinet's going to decide on the issue around March next year. Now, specifically, the effects test proposed by Harper creates a test of whether the conduct of a big corporation has a purpose or likely effect of substantially lessening of competition. Now, that was championed by the former small business minister, Bruce Bilson, who was replaced by Kelly O'Dwyer, and this week he quit politics. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it was strongly opposed by big business and the Labor Party. Yeah, so it doesn't look as though it's going to get up, does it? Well, it's going to be very interesting to see if it does. Anyway, uh, most Australian non-financial corporates will have modest growth in 2016, but the continuing slowdown in China is going to keep pressure on natural resources and mining services companies. That's according to Moody's Investors Services. Moody says the modest increase in earnings growth will be largely driven by an improving domestic economy with 1.25 to 2.5% GDP growth expected in 2016 and low interest rates. It has a stable outlook for companies in the retail and consumer sectors and building and construction sectors as well as for Australian Real Estate Investment Trust. It's also taken a positive view about airport sector with improving domestic operating competitive conditions. And demand remains soft because of the slowdown in the mining sector, but lower fuel prices and a weaker Australian dollar are good for Australian airports. On the other hand, it's all uphill for mining and metal sectors where commodity price declines will continue to outpace cost restrictions. And Moody says these will be the most vulnerable to slower growth globally with cash flows expected to continue the downward trend. And we haven't got enough innovation going yet, have we? No, no. Now, some interesting news out of the corporate sector. Uh, Qantas has joined forces with health insurer NIB and it's offering health insurance products tied in with the carrier's frequent flyer program. Now, under the plan, NIB will provide its health insurance risk assessment underwriting capability. Qantas Loyalty will provide the marketing data and customer retention expertise. And the Qantas Assure branded health insurance products will also come with the ability to earn Qantas points through the frequent flyer program. And the parties are going to share value equally. So I think that's interesting, Gary. It is. It's a funny old world, isn't it? Supermarkets are going into banking and airlines are going into health insurance. Isn't that interesting? Now, Australia's largest bank, Macquarie Group, has launched a $400 million capital raising. This is the second one Macquarie's announced, and that comes after a raising in October with the group. And what the group's doing is bolstering its capital reserve ratios to meet tough new Australian prudential regulation authority standards. Now, an interesting report during the week that global private equity giants TPG and the Blackstone Group are running the ruler over Woolworths' Big W division. That's according to the Australian Financial Review Street Talk section. And the Australian reported that Blackstone and the Carlyle Group have approached the Woolworths board about a takeover of the $30 billion retail giants. Now, I reckon Woolworths is an obvious candidate for takeover speculation because its share price has fallen 20% since the start of the year because of concerns about it competing with West Farmer's own coals and its mounting losses. And it also coincided with the announcement that former long-serving boss Robert Roger Corbett is going to rejoin the company as an advisor. Yeah, well, he's got big problems, and the Albatross is masters their uh, failed attempt to attack uh, to attack Bunnings. That's right. Now, a uh, final bit of news, Gary, is that Transurban has acquired the Bridge Connections-owned toll road, Airport Link M7. It's paid $1.87 billion to add the toll road to its war chest and added to the price tag is stamped duty of $108 million, transaction cost of $23 million. Now, Airport Link M7 is an urban tunnel connecting Brisbane to the CBD in the city's northern, southern and western suburbs. And to help fund the acquisition, Transurban is raising $1.025 billion through a fully underwritten pro-rata accelerated renounceable entitlement offer. Now, Transurban reckons the proceeds are going to be used to 
pay for the acquisition, reduce debt, and provide Transurban with the flexibility and firepower to pursue more acquisitions. Transurban already has stakes in five roads in Queensland, and Bridge Connections was a candidate because it was placed into administration in 2013 after traffic volumes on the road missed expectations. Yeah, well, I don't know if they're going to get the traffic to make a buck out of it. Well, yes, but they're expanding, which is very, very interesting. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. That's good. Next week, we're going to have a fascinating interview with entrepreneur Dennis Benjamin. That's right. Yep. And so that'll, that'll be fascinating. And uh, in the meantime, you can be in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.